This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We've passed the halfway point now. Um, We spent several weeks talking about some of the techniques for telling stories well. And now we've entered into the portion of the class where we're talking about specific scenarios um, in which you can use stories, specific things you can seek to accomplish through telling stories in a way that would serve the Lord. So tonight we're going to be looking at the power of stories to remind. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll start with a story from Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening you've given us. Thank you for your grace to bring us here, your grace to give us the ability to engage with this material, to learn, to think, to consider what your word has to share with us. I pray that you would give us clear minds, understanding hearts, and Lord, help us take to heart uh, the information that we look at tonight, be able to use it practically, to be better servants for you. Help us to see the the wonderful examples from Scripture, the lessons you have us to learn. Help it to be clear to each of our minds and hearts, and may we be better servants for you because of what we consider. We love you. We're thankful that you see fit to use us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua, who is the leader of the nation of Israel, uh, passes through the Jewish camp. And as he does, he's solemnly admonishing the people to sanctify themselves. Tomorrow, he tells them, the Lord will do wonders among you. For the time being, he isn't any more specific. Though the people know that whatever's happening, they're going to be pitching camp and they're going to be moving to a new location. And as the time approaches for these wonders done by God to happen, Joshua explains what's going to happen. He prepares the people for the miracle that they're about to witness. And he also tells them to pick one man from each of the 12 tribes for a very special assignment. So they pitch camp, they set out. The priests who are bearing the Ark of the Covenant uh, lead the column of people, and everyone follows behind. And they approach the Jordan River. Now, at this time of of year, the Jordan River is swollen. Um, It's overflowing its banks. And no doubt, hearts are pounding a little bit as the priests and the precious ark are getting closer and closer to this rapidly moving water. It is not until the soles of the priest's feet touch the water that the miracle happens. All of a sudden, the water is cut off. It's like a an invisible wall is dropped into the Jordan River and the water stops to their right and to their left the rest of the water quickly drains away miraculously leaving a dry riverbed. And so the priests take their place in that dry riverbed and the entire nation marches across the the now dry ground to the other side. But it is then that Joshua gives these 12 men who've been chosen, one from each tribe, their their God-given charge. They are each to take a a stone. Um, The Bible doesn't tell us exactly the size, but it's large enough that they're supposed to carry it up on their shoulder. And each of these men takes one of these stones out of the riverbed, and he's to carry it to their encampment for that night. And so they do so. Uh, And they encamp in a place called Gilgal. And there they're given a special task. They take these 12 stones, which have been smoothed by the waters of this rapidly flowing river, and they pile them together. Now, you imagine a pile of 12 large, smooth stones is going to be something that would draw attention. It's going to be a conspicuous landmark. It's going to be the kind of thing that is going to Uh, draw people's curiosity. You can imagine families passing by and children asking their parents, why are these stones here? And in fact, that is God's reason behind this pile of stones being created. He tells them when the time comes that that children 
uh, many of whom at this point are not yet born, pass by and they see this odd pile of rocks and they ask, what mean these stones? The people are instructed to tell the story of what happened on this awe-inspiring day. They're to tell the people, their children and their grandchildren, Israel came over this Jordan on dry ground. They're to explain that the Lord dried up the waters of Jordan until the whole nation had passed over, just like he did at the Red Sea. So God puts this memorial in place because he wants these people and the whole world to know that he's a mighty God who ought to, be, ought to be feared. And this pile of stones and the story that is attached to it are a part of his plan to make himself known through his people generation after generation. It's interesting to me how much God cared about keeping this story alive. He didn't just care about doing this miracle. He cared about making sure the story of the miracle stayed alive. He cared enough about it to get them to build this pile of stones. That's because God understands the power that stories have to remind us, not in a remember the good old days kind of way, but in a way that grows and strengthens our faith. You know, I like hearing and telling new stories, ones where the hearers legitimately don't know what's going to happen at the end. But there's a very special place for familiar stories, for repeated stories, for stories that are told much in much the same way generation after generation after generation. And that is in great part what we're going to be looking at tonight. Stories that serve as ongoing reminders. Now, you might hear stuff out there today about using stories to remind people of what they have done inspiring them to have faith in themselves and to um, be able to trust in what they can accomplish. And I do want to be clear from the outset, that is not even sort of what we're talking about tonight. All right, This isn't about bolstering someone's self-confidence by reminding them of what they've accomplished in the past. What we're going to be talking about tonight is reminding people of who God is and of what God has done inspiring them to have faith in him and what he can accomplish. That's what this story here was all about, that God had them create this pile of stones and keep this story alive. So I want to look at four areas in particular tonight where it's helpful for us to think about stories as reminders, repeated to keep the truth in front of our hearers. First of all, let's look at Bible stories. What was your first introduction to the Bible? Now, if you're like me, you'd say, I have no idea. I was too young to remember. But probably for most of us, especially if we were introduced to God and the Bible as children, it probably came in the form of a Bible story. From the earliest ages, we're sharing with children stories from the Bible. If you take a field trip to the children's Sunday school classes on Sunday. You'll hear one Bible story being told here. You'll hear another Bible story over here, another Bible story over here. Why is that? Why do we tell Bible stories to children so much? Well, one reason is stories are great. Stories are easy to teach. Um, they're easy to listen to. They seem easier for children to understand than other sorts of lessons. Some people might suggest that the reason that we focus on Bible stories with kids is because they can't really handle theology. Um, they, we can give them the theology when they get older, but when they're younger, we just have to give them the stories. And then later, we'll give them the, the other stuff. And so we'll tell them about Noah and the Ark. We'll tell them about Daniel in the lion's den. We'll tell them about Jonah and the whale. We'll give them the stories now, and we'll worry about the theology later. My question is, does it have to be one or the other? Does it have to be either stories or theology? That's how we think about it sometimes. 
You're either teaching the Bible stories or you're teaching the, the, the meat, you know, the, the real deep theology stuff. It's either a surface level story or it's Paul's letters. And it feels like it's one or the other. I would argue, though, that theology is one of the big reasons that God has given us the stories in the Bible. Stories hold a great deal of power to instill and reinforce deep doctrinal truths. And I would argue that if they're shared the way God intended, that stories can be one of the most effective ways to ground both children and adults in theology. Consider two specific areas where Bible stories remind us and help us to learn eternal truth. First, they teach us what God is like. Now, in that story we considered at the very beginning, the people of Israel, um, as this was happening with this crossing of Jordan, they likened that miracle to another event that had happened a little bit earlier in their history. Any idea what that was? There we go. All right, the Red Sea crossing, okay? A lot of, a lot of uh, similarity there. And uh, that's what they thought back to, all right? We're crossing on dry land through this river. Hey, I remember this happening before, except last time it was the sea. But, you know, it's interesting to me, as you read through Scripture, how often the Red Sea crossing is referenced throughout the history of Israel. It's this touch point. They go back to again and again, and they reference the Red Sea crossing over and over. It's this story they return to again and again and again and again through their history. And it's just one of many. There are other stories like that that you see referenced throughout Israel's history. But why is that? Why would they return to this story about this Red Sea crossing over and over? Well, I mean, it was an amazing thing to experience. But many of the people telling the stories weren't even, the story of it weren't even there. This is generations down the line. For example, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, um, as the people are returning to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the walls of the city, they reference that event, the Red Sea crossing. But it happened roughly seven centuries before that. So 700 years later, why are they still talking about the Red Sea crossing? Uh, the Red Sea crossing is also mentioned in the book of Hebrews, which was written something like 1,300 years after the Red Sea crossing. You know, I think there's a really important reason that there are these certain stories, these certain events served as touch points that were mentioned over and over again. And I think it's because they reminded the people of important truths about God. The people of Israel allowed these stories to be reminders to them of God's faithfulness, his grace to establish them as a people, his keeping of his covenant, uh, his omnipotence, the fact that no situation is too hard for him to handle. They went back to these stories because the stories reminded them of truths about God. When they thought back to the Red Sea, they remembered, oh yeah, God really can handle this. God really does care about us. God really will bring us through. And so, Bible stories are valuable theology teaching opportunities. And I'm afraid that we do lose that opportunity often when we go to these good old Bible stories that we know so well, but we fail to remind our hearers of what they teach us about the character of God. So for example, what is the point of the story of Jonah? The point of the story of Jonah is you need to obey or you're going to get thrown in the sea and swallowed by a whale. So be good. <laughs> Obviously I'm joking, but I've almost heard people share the, the story of Jonah that way before. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This isn't about be good, be obedient, or you'll get thrown to a whale. What is the book of Jonah about? Well, what does it teach us about God? Interestingly enough, Jonah gives us the theme of the book. And it, he gives us the theme, 
as he's complaining to God. He complains to God and he accuses God of being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. <laughs> that verse always kills me because he's saying, I wish you weren't that way. And we're like, wait a minute, Jonah. If God weren't that way, where would you be? That's what the book of Jonah is about. It shows us the mercy of God. The mercy of God on this wicked city that repents and turns to him. The mercy of God on this stubborn prophet who, who keeps on rebelling against what God is trying to do. That's the point of the story of Jonah. And we could go through a whole list and how easy it is to miss the point when we don't stop and ask ourselves the question, what does this teach me about God? So, even Peter, I don't know where I've mentioned about Jonah in the well. Yeah, he used it as a, as, a, um, as a picture. He talked about the sign that he was going to give to the people of the, the three days. So stories teach us about who, what God is like, but they also teach us what people are like. Luke 17.32 is almost the shortest verse in the Bible. In, in the English Bible, at least, it's three words. Remember Lot's wife. That's a really short story. But Jesus got the point across. He had a way of getting the point across in very few words. Lot's wife, we're, we're probably familiar with the story. She was attached. Her heart was in Sodom. And she looked back as, as they ran, and bam, she turned into a pillar of salt. But stories like that are so valuable because they remind us of realities about human nature. They remind us how easy it is for our hearts to get attached to the things of the world. And as they teach us about human nature in general, obviously it comes back to us and it teaches us about our own human nature. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the people of Israel in the period after their miraculous deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And it tells us about their failings. And it says in verses 6 through 11, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Paul is saying, these stories were written down for us. And they were written down, recorded in scripture, for our admonition. They are examples, literally the word here is types, of human nature. These are types of what people do and how people react and the temptations that people face. He says it was all written down to give us examples so that we would be admonished, so that we wouldn't do what they did. The Bible has much to teach us about, about human nature, the pitfalls that we can easily succumb to. It teaches us what people, and by extension, what we are like. In essence, these stories say, here are the things that you are going to struggle with. So watch out. And we see that certainly with the history of Israel. Again and again, we see them making the same mistakes and doubting God in the same ways that we do. And that's a big part of the reason God gave us those stories as in samples, as types, for our admonition. So Bible stories can do a lot to teach us about human nature, what people are like. We can learn and teach so much if we look at the stories in Scripture the way that God looks at them. And they can be so powerful in reminding us and others of the truth about God and about ourselves. So Bible stories certainly are a big part of of using stories to remind, bringing these truths before uh, people's eyes again and again. So many of these familiar stories, we can think, ah, oh, we already know that one. I want to find one that somebody doesn't know. 
but we have to recognize the power that the familiar stories have too to bring those things before us again and again and again but there are other sorts of stories um, I'm going to mention a few like I, like I said I believe I mentioned this earlier I'm certainly not trying to be exhaustive here but some specific areas that I think this idea of reminding bringing these stories before people um, some specific areas this can be helpful another one is family stories now what is it that sets one family apart from another well there are lots of different aspects uh, personality quirks hobbies habits um, but there is one thing that really makes a family unique and separates it from other families even that maybe share some of the same traits and that is stories every store every family is unique in that every family has its own set of stories now some families put more emphasis on that they share those stories more often others not so much but either way every every family has its its lore and that's just part of what makes that family that family now I didn't really think about my family as a big storytelling family and then we started to add new members to the family as different ones of us got married and I found that part of that process of inducting new people into the family is sharing with them the family lore all right that we have to we have to tell them the stories or they can't truly be a brown yet until they know the brown stories all right it's just part of the process because you can't really know the brown family the essence of our family until you know those stories for better or worse <laughs> but why is it that way why do stories have such a part to play in the personality of a family well I think it's because those stories keep alive what has marked that family through the years as it's grown and changed and those stories keep something alive and that has made me start to think about what I consider to be a very consequential question and that is in my family now with my wife and my kids what are the stories that I want to keep alive what stories do I want to tell my kids about their grandparents and great-grandparents what stories do I want to tell my kids about my childhood and about their childhood obviously some of those stories are just gonna be fun and funny but family stories also have the potential to be a reminder of some really consequential lessons and I'll point out two areas specifically one those stories can teach about faith at Christmas time 2014 I didn't really know what my life was gonna look like a year from then I did know I was getting married all right she'd said yes we had a date set that was set in stone we're getting married in July I knew that part but as far as where we were gonna live what I was gonna be doing for work that was up in the air uh, I studied missions in college I was getting ready to finish my degree um, and wanted to be involved in ministry but there weren't really any wide open doors anywhere and wasn't really sure exactly where the Lord was leading spent Christmas 2014 here in Virginia with my family and Becca got to be here for Christmas as well and that was great enjoyed that and while we were here I decided to talk to Pastor Asher and just mentioned to him we're not really sure what's coming up but if we were to move to this area what would be the ministry opportunities that I might have here at the church because regardless of where we are regardless of what I'm doing for work I want to be involved in the church and so asked him about that and his answer kind of threw me for a loop he said well we're looking for an assistant pastor that was not the answer I was expecting him to give me um, but it was an exciting prospect because here's an opportunity to be involved in ministry it was starting to look like maybe I was gonna to have to take a secular job at least for a while and see where the Lord would lead and so um, he began to pray Becca and I began to pray and it's pretty clear where that led I can't hold you over a cliff with that one okay <laughs> but I remember as it was all unfolding I struggled a little bit maybe an embarrassing amount with how easy it all seemed to be it seemed like it had been dropped in my lap 
And from what I had heard, that didn't strike me as the way that God is supposed to work. It's supposed to be more of a mystery than that. It's supposed to be more of a struggle than that. And I remember at one point in the process, I was having a conversation with Pastor Asher, and I mentioned some of that, the misgivings, the struggle I was having with that. And I remember clearly what he told me. He reminded me that God is our shepherd, and he knows that we are, his words, dumb sheep. <laughs> so he knows how to make his will clear to us. He's not out there trying to hide his will from us. He's not trying to say, ooh, I bet you can't figure this one out. He's trying to help us follow him. And if we truly want to follow him, then he has a way of making the path clear. And that really helped me, and that encouraged me. And it's continued to be an encouragement to me again and again. As I've served here, it's reminded me over and over again that God led us here. And his leading was clear, and his leading is clear. And that I can trust him to lead just as clearly in each decision that I face, and each milestone that I reach. Now that story can teach us something about faith. Not in a, look at my faith kind of way. But the point is, God knows how to lead his children. And we can trust him to lead us in just the right way at just the right time. So that lesson can be a story, or that story can be a lesson about faith. God can be trusted. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph does something that's really masterful. At the end of his life, he does something that ensures that a specific story is going to survive for generations to come. Joseph is on his deathbed, and he gives one final charge to his family. He says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land onto the land which I swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All right? Then he makes them promise that a specific command will be followed. Joseph says, when God brings his people out of the land... I want you to carry up my bones from hence. Now, you're not allowed to ignore the wish of a dying man. And so as Joseph is on his deathbed and he tells his family this, they promise, yes, we'll do it. But in doing that, Joseph is keeping something alive in that nation. Because... As generation follows generation, that charge is going to be passed down. And with it, a promise in the form of a story. Now the story survived because Joseph's bones are brought back to the land by the Israelites when they leave Egypt. But with the way that Joseph gave this charge, he ensured that every generation would be told, Here's what Granddad Joseph said. He said that God is going to visit us and bring us back to the land. And Joseph said when that happens, we're supposed to bring his bones back to the land. And they wanted to honor his wish, and so they passed it down again and again. And every time they did, they were reminding the people, Joseph believed that God was going to visit us and bring us back to the land. Joseph believed that was going to happen enough that he gave us this command. And by doing that, Joseph strengthened the faith of every generation and reminded them, this is not our final home. God has something ahead for us. I love how he did that and kept that promise alive by connecting it to this promise that he made them make about his bones. So family stories, in a unique way, can teach us about faith. But they also have a special power to teach us about relationships. Uh, stories can teach us a lot about relationships. We can think of lots of examples from Scripture. A story like Ruth and Naomi can teach us about the power of loyalty. A story like Jeremiah and the Rechabites, which we've mentioned in class, uh, can teach us about honoring our elders. On the flip side... A story like that of Samson can teach us negatively about the power
power of careless relationships. But if you think about it in the realm of family, stories can teach us things like what real love looks like, what it means for people to stand up for each other, and how to forgive those who have wronged us. I could tell stories from my family about the power of encouragement, about the courage to admit when you've been wrong, about the patience to put up with people that drive you crazy. (laughs) But those sorts of stories can be powerful repeated reminders about the right kind of relationships and how to maintain good relationships with those in our lives. So those can be powerful reminders to pass along as well. Now this next point is connected to family stories, but I did want to mention it on its own. That's family traditions. Um, What does your family do at Christmas or at Thanksgiving? We're not going to take time. I'd, I would I would genuinely be interested to hear some some about different family traditions. But you know, one thing that I think is interesting about family traditions um, is there's always a story behind them. Now, in some cases, it's a meaningful story. In other cases, it's not quite as meaningful. But somehow, that tradition came to be in the beginning. All right, something led to it. And so... There is always a story behind it, whether or not that comes out in the way that the tradition is practiced. But truly meaningful family traditions, especially if they're intentionally connected to that meaningful story, can be really powerful. Think about the Passover. In Exodus 12, Israel is on the cusp of truly becoming a nation. They're still in Egypt, but they're about to be brought out of captivity. And... God sets up a feast and some unusual rituals as he sends the final plague on Egypt. But as he does that, he doesn't set it up as a one-time thing. He says, this is going to be a feast that you're going to practice every year. This Passover thing is not just a, one, a one-time thing. It's going to be an annual uh, celebration for the people of Israel. And even to this day, each year, the people of Israel, the Jews, eat certain foods, they behave in ways that are different from how a Jewish family would normally behave. Now those customs look a little bit different today from how they did at the very beginning. This is an example of a a Passover Seder table. Um, Each of the things on that plate that you see there have a special special meaning within the Passover uh, celebration. There are certain things that they eat. There are certain things that they say. But it's interesting to me, uh, part of the celebration of that Seder meal is something called the four questions, or the manishtana. And traditionally, that's recited by the youngest child in attendance. And the child asks uh, about the reason that this time, that this night is different from all other nights. Why is it? that we do these things that we don't normally do. And then the answer comes, it's all part of the ritual, but the answer comes, and it comes in the form of the story about how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and how his great salvation was shown through the ten plagues and through that final plague, and as God led the people into the promised land. Now, the book of Exodus makes it clear that that was God's intent from the very beginning. He set up this this feast. He set up this tradition so that the story behind the tradition would continue to be told year after year after year. So that it wouldn't be something that just comes up every once in a while, but every year they'd be going back and the children would be saying, why are we doing this? And the elders would be saying, Let me tell you, it's because of what God did. I think that's a great example of a meaningful family tradition serving a purpose to keep a story alive that points us to the Lord. Growing up each year at Easter, we'd have an Easter egg hunt. But we wouldn't just find plastic eggs with candy in them. There were some of those. But there were also some that were numbered. And those ones that were numbered, we would save until we'd found all of them. And then we would open them in numerical order. And each of them would have an item inside. There were different things for each number. And they each represented something 
in the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, so, for example, I think there was one that had a coin in it that signified Judas betraying Jesus. There was one with thorns in it to represent the crown of thorns. There was one that was empty to represent the empty tomb, that sort of thing. And we and we'd go through, and uh, one of my parents would, would read the story for each of those eggs as we'd open it and see what was inside. And it would carry us through the Easter story. And I remember looking forward to that each year. It was the same thing each year, but I looked forward to it because somehow there was still an excitement about opening each one and seeing, oh, this one's this. What does that stand for? But it was a tradition that we did every year that every time we did that, it was drawing our attention once again to what Christ had done for us. It was something simple, but it was something that truly had a meaningful story behind it. I think that's something important for us to consider is how we can use this idea of stories that remind and connect it with family traditions. Moving on, let's consider personal stories. Now, as we look at the idea of personal stories, this is kind of two-sided. Um, this can be personal stories in the sense that we're taking a story from somebody else's life and recounting it back to them. So it's a personal story to them that we're taking and sharing back with them. Or it can be a personal story to us that we're sharing with ourselves or others to remind us of something that's happened to us. And I'll give some examples just to clarify on that. But we can all begin to lose sight of who God is and what he's done. And often those personal stories can strike a chord in a unique way that brings things back into focus. And those personal stories can highlight different lessons. For example, the past ex- our past experience of God's greatness and goodness. One example in scripture of this comes in 1 Samuel 17. I'm letting myself get behind on the PowerPoint. All right, there we go. So here the mighty King Saul is speaking with a young sheep herder. And the young man assures the king that no one needs to be afraid. He is ready to take on the challenge. He is ready to go out and fight the enemy's challenger. Now, the king sees this as foolish, youthful enthusiasm. And so he puts it to, puts it to him straight. He, he points out to this young man... You're young. This guy has been a soldier since he was young. All right? He's experienced. You're a kid. This is not going to work out. But young David persists. Thy servant, he says, kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. And then David adds an important note. He says, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Now, Saul can't argue with this evidence of David's experience battling large predators. But clearly, David's tale is about far more than just his prowess as a warrior. David is pointing out something very important. He has seen God's power to deliver. And he is confident that he can expect to see it again. That's what David's pointing out. Not, look... I kill these animals, I can kill him. He's saying, no, God worked and helped me to kill those animals, and God can help me to kill this challenger. So Saul relents. He sends David into battle against Goliath, telling him, go, and the Lord be with thee. Now, at first glance, David's story does sound like a whole bunch of bragging. And nobody likes a story where the person telling the story is the hero. But David avoids that trap because he recognizes he's not the hero. 
God is the one who gave him victory. And you know, as we think about this idea of using stories from our own lives to, talk, to share with others the greatness and goodness of God, we need eyes to see, to know, to understand that we are not the heroes of our own lives. The one bringing us success, the one who's fixing our messes, the one who's straightening the crooked paths is not us. It's God. And when we learn to see him at work in our lives, it not only fixes our perspective, but it'll give us the opportunity to share about his greatness and goodness with others. It could have been easy for someone who went through what David went through to say, look, I'm impressive because look what I've done. Instead, David had the sense to say, no, look what God has done. And I can expect him to work once again. Personal stories can also be reminders of past personal faith. In 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel is giving King Saul a real dressing down. Saul has just ignored a clear command of God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. He's spared the life of King Agag, and he's kept a whole bunch of livestock alive as well. And Samuel lays into him. But as he begins to lay into him, he starts out with a story. And Samuel says to Saul, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? In other words, Samuel's reminding Saul of a time when he wasn't so full of himself. Of a time when he was so nervous about the whole king thing that he hid at his own coronation. Samuel says, do you remember back then, Saul? Do you remember how you looked at all of this then? Do you remember how much you realized that you needed God? That you couldn't do this king thing on your own? Do you remember that? That's, well, that was your position when God made you king. And he's getting ready to tell Saul that God has said, I don't want you as king anymore. But Samuel takes Saul back, and he reminds Saul of a story from his own life, reminding him of past faith in God. Now, this is an area where we have to tread carefully. But it can be a really powerful thing to remind someone of how they have trusted God in the past. There have been times that I've read my own journal entries or notes that I've taken. And I've thought, wow, my faith in God, my commitment to him when I wrote that was greater back then than it is now. And it challenges me and it makes me ask, what's wrong? Why is my heart not where it ought to be now? What, what's happened to my relationship with God? I want to go back there. Mark Taylor has an interesting practice he's been doing for years now. And don't worry, I got his permission to mention this. Um, when they go to the wilds, when the teens go to the wilds, um, if the teens make a decision during one of the services and somebody deals with them, they fill out a decision card. And they, they'll write down some things in their own words about what the Lord's doing in their heart, about the decision they've made to the Lord, the commitment they're making to him. And all of those cards, at the end of the week, go to um, the sponsor of the group. So Brother Taylor gets those cards. And that allows him to talk to the parents about the decisions that the kids have made, to be able to challenge the kids about the decisions that they've made. But he also hangs on to those cards for years. And sometimes he'll flip through them, and he'll find someone who needs some encouragement, needs some challenge, somebody perhaps who's away from the Lord, and he'll take that card that they filled out when they were a teenager, and he'll write them a note, and he'll slip that card in there, and he'll send the note to them. Just say, I want to remind you about this decision that you made for the Lord. And he's told me that often, even with teens who are away from the Lord, or now adults, but who are away from the Lord, who aren't serving the Lord the way they ought to, They'll write him back and say, thank you for that. Thank you for sending me that. Thank you for reminding me. 
But those reminders can be so powerful to say, do you remember what God did in your life back then? Do you remember that decision you made for the Lord? Do you remember that thing that you went through and how you trusted the Lord through it and how he blessed that? Like I said, we've got to be so gracious and careful and humble in the way that we do that. But that can be a really powerful thing. These are just a few of the ways that stories can be powerful reminders. Bible stories, family stories, personal stories. They each hold the potential to remind us of who God is and what he's done, as well as reminding us about what it means to trust and follow him. These stories can be especially powerful in the context of family because they teach lessons, but they aren't lectures. Kids and grandkids don't tend to respond well to or even remember the lectures that are shared with them, but those stories stick. And they can teach lessons that are just as powerful and more abiding than the lectures would share. It takes some extra work, but they can be so such, a, such an effective tool. So consider how you can use stories in your family and beyond. This isn't just about family. To remind others of the truth and to bring that truth before them again and again. It was senior year in college, and I had a crush on Becca. But I wasn't about to do anything about it. I didn't want to follow my feelings into something that God didn't intend for me. I was an overly cautious person, and I was not one to pursue a relationship. And so if it had been up to me, nothing probably would have ever happened. <laughs> but we were part of the same circle of friends. And one day, a bunch of us were at lunch in the cafeteria, sitting around a big round table. And it was a Friday. And uh, I always had to work on Friday, but I didn't have to work that week. And we would often, if we were free in the evening, this group of friends, we'd get together, we'd play games or hang out somewhere on campus. And so I mentioned I didn't have to work that evening. I wondered if anyone was up for getting together uh, for games or whatever. And Becca spoke up. She said that a friend of hers was the coach of the junior high girls basketball team at the Christian school that was on campus. To support her friend, Becca was planning to attend the junior high girls basketball game that evening and wondered if any of us might want to come along. Now please understand, junior high girls basketball <laughs> is an interesting sport. In some ways, it's a sport all to itself, completely separate from any other kind of basketball. In junior high girls basketball, the whole team travels down the court as a pack. When the time comes to shoot, there's a lot of feet being kicked out in weird directions and arms flailing, and there's not a lot of balls that actually go into the net. I was not interested in junior high girls basketball, but I was interested in Becca. And so I said that I would be there. And several others at the table said they'd probably show up as well. Well, a little while before the game was supposed to start, I entered the gymnasium. I think I might have been the only person there that wasn't a parent or sibling of someone on the team at that point. I looked around. I didn't see anyone there who had been at that cafeteria lunch table. I took a seat in the nearly empty bleachers, hoping that I wasn't destined to watch this game alone. <laughs> but it wasn't long before Becca showed up. She made her way up the bleachers, and she sat next to me. And none of the rest of our friends ended up showing up. They later claimed they forgot. I think it might have had something to do with junior high girls basketball. <laughs> but I wasn't complaining. Becca and I started to talk as things geared up for the game. And we talked and talked and talked. We talked through the junior high girls basketball game. We talked through the varsity high school guys game that followed. Then we went outside and continued to talk in the cold November night. Eventually, we had to say goodnight because I lived in the dorm and I still had curfew. But before we parted ways, I did something that was very out of character. I asked for her number. And she gave it to me, and the rest is history. Except for the part where I got her number one digit wrong. <laughs> and, but that's another 
that's a story all in itself. But that's a story that I, I love to repeat. And uh, why would I want to repeat that story? Well, it's a fun story. Not everyone can say that their first date was an accident or that it was at a junior high girls basketball game. But there's a much deeper reason I like to repeat that story. It's a powerful reminder of some lessons. Uh, someday I'll probably share that story with my kids as they begin to think about dating and marriage. Reminding them that they don't need to stress about it. God has got it under control. Even if boring old dad with his lack of initiative found God leading me right where he wanted me to be into a relationship with the most amazing woman in the world, they don't have anything to worry about. But this story has other lessons to teach too. It reminds me and those who hear it that God works in mundane and common ways. Silly things like a common conversation at a lunch, lunch table in the school cafeteria or junior high girls basketball also have their part in God's grand design. But probably my favorite lesson that this story teaches is that God brought us together. I can't take credit. My, my charm, my magnetic charm, <laughs> is not what drew her to me. There's a guy who was on faculty at the college at that time, who we both confided in and we got advice from. He tries to take credit. It wasn't him either. God did it. God arranged our first date. And I think that's awesome. Stories, especially these repeated stories, can be so powerful to keep the truth before us, to remind us again and again about what's true about God, the fact that we can trust him, and the fact that he's always at work. I gave a few tips on the handout about using family stories. I think they're pretty straightforward. Um, connect to the present. Help the people you're telling the story to understand, how is this story about me? Um, this isn't just a dusty old story from the past. Um, second, highlight the God lesson. It's not just an interesting story. It's not just moralistic. We talked about that last time. It's not just do what I did. Or don't do what Uncle Fred did. It's, no, what can we learn about God from this story? And then finally, if needed, ask permission. Don't share sensitive information or tell a story about something, someone that might be embarrassing without checking with them first. All right? That might seem really straightforward, but be, be careful. Be thoughtful. Um, and uh, that puts an extra layer of work, but it's, I think, as people who want to please the Lord and uh, have the relationships we ought to have with others, that we need to take that step. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.